boy men. I threw myself across the yard, grabbing the book in Fritz's hand. What are you doing? I cried. Stop! Half his collection was already burning in the bucket. Fritz yanked the book back from me and tried to hold it over his head where I couldn't reach it, but I was taller than he was. I snatched at the book, and we wrestled over it for a few desperate seconds until at last I had it. I was about to ask him again what the bloody hell he thought he was doing when he punched me in the nose. It was fast and straight, and his feet were planted just right, and I'd never seen it coming. All the things I'd taught him to do. I staggered back, lost my footing, and fell on my butt. I put a hand to my nose and came away with blood. Fritz stood over me, a look of fierce cruelty in his knitted eyebrows, and suddenly I understood why Fritz had wanted me to teach him how to fight, why he'd been so desperate to join the SRD. All his life, Fritz had been the boy with the bloody nose sitting here on the ground, looking up at the bully who'd beaten him. He joined the SRD so he could become the bully himself, just like little Hitler. So this is what it's come to, I said. I didn't get up. I didn't want to fight Fritz. That's not why I was here. You'd burn these books, I said. I hurled the book I'd taken back at him, and he batted it away. You'd burn something you love just to be on top for once in your life, even if it means turning your back on who you are. Fritz tugged at his SRD uniform. This is who I am. I'm going to lead Germany into the future. I'm going to help Hitler rule the world. But to do that, I have to make sacrifices, he said, quoting the Fuhrer back to me. You've burned books, too. You made me burn books that day the other boys attacked me. I told you to burn those books so the other boys wouldn't kill you. No, Fritz said. He picked up the book I'd thrown at him. They were right. This is degenerate fifth. I should never have read it to begin with. And neither should you. A good Nazi doesn't need books or philosophy or art. We sink with our blood. You sink with your blood? I said. What does that even mean? How is that even possible? Fritz threw the book back at me, but I ducked it. You've never taken any of this seriously, Michael. You've always treated this like a game. Maybe it's because you're not German. But this isn't a game. It's real. It was strange hearing the things I'd just been saying to myself come from Fritz's lips. It was as though I suddenly stepped outside myself and saw me sitting there on the ground at Fritz's feet. We were just 13, me and Fritz, but we didn't look like boys anymore. Nazi Germany, the war, the Hitler youth, all of it had made us into men. Not man-gods, as Hitler had said, but boy-men. Boys whose insides, whose hearts and minds and souls had been forced to grow up faster than our bodies. The war had made us men, and it was time to act like it. My parents are spies, I said. All in. I felt lightheaded as I said it. Hollow, like it was some dream version of me, something that would go away when I woke up. Fritz froze. What? I wet my dry lips. You're right. 
It's time for me to stop playing games. To commit myself completely. It's time I told the truth. My parents are spies. They are harboring the British airmen. The one we were searching for in the countryside. They are hiding him until they can get him out of the country. Fritz staggered back, the black smoke from the burning book swirling around him. There. I don't know, I lied. But they are moving him tonight. You have to tell the Gestapo. I'll find out where and when and lead them there. Fritz blinked in amazement. His eyes went elsewhere as he considered all this, then finally found my face. When they did, the anger was gone, replaced by something like admiration, awe. He offered me his hand to help me up, and I took it. We were friends again, and I was the boy who denounced his parents to the Nazis. There was only one thing left to do. How to Take a Beating, Part 2 I caught Horst later that day coming home from the overage movie he'd snuck in to see at the cinema. I knew I could beat Horst in a fair fight, but this wasn't going to be a fair fight. I hurried up behind him, threw a flower sack over his head, and kicked him in the back of the knee. He went down hard on the sidewalk, and before he could tear the sack off his head and see who attacked him, I kicked him hard, right in the ribs. I heard something crack, and he screamed and doubled over. A quick German look told me we were still alone, and I kicked him again and again. His arms, his legs, his chest, his head. He'd had this coming ever since he'd been our Jungfolk leader, ever since he'd let the bigger boys pound the smaller boys for fun, ever since he'd put me and Fritz in the ring together and told him to keep getting up. Ever since he'd beaten that Edelweiss pirate to within an inch of his life, I gave Horst the beatdown he'd delivered to so many other boys, the beatdown I wanted the Allies to give to that bully Adolf Hitler. I kicked him and kicked him and kicked him until he didn't scream anymore, didn't moan, didn't move. He was still alive when I finished, but just barely. I dipped two fingers in the blood that was pooling on the sidewalk underneath him, and on the wall above his broken body, I drew a picture of an Edelweiss. Tonight. I led my parents into Da's study when I got home and pulled Simon out of the hidden room. We have to do it tonight, I told them. This time, my voice didn't crack. There's been an opening on the science team. Owls in the Night It was colder that night, as if winter had given spring a thrashing that would lay it up in the hospital for another month. I stamped my feet and buried my hands in the heavy overcoat I wore. It was even colder by the River Spree, on the pedestrian path underneath the Moltke Bridge. There were no Fußgängers down here tonight. No footgoers, not officially. It was after curfew. Everyone but the SRD and the Gestapo were supposed to be shut up tight in their homes. A dozen of us waited in the shadows. Owls in the night, waiting for our prey to emerge. Our steamy breaths made faint gray clouds in the darkness. This Horst, I whispered to Fritz. Otmar and Erhardt had been there when we set out from the Gestapo station, but not the fourth musketeer. 
The pirates got him, Fritz growled. I nodded. Not that Fritz or anyone else could see me, which let me smile a little in the darkness. The smile quickly faded, though. I was far too nervous about what was about to happen to enjoy my easy victory over donkey-faced Horst. We heard a soft step on the cement path under the bridge, and the breathing around me stopped as we all strained our ears to listen. A whisper, words I couldn't understand. The sound of scuffling feet. Whoever it was, they were coming our way. The wait was agonizing. My stomach did somersaults. Was this Simon? Or had we unwittingly scheduled this little piece of theater in the same place and on the same night that some family was trying to escape? Some Edelweiss pirates were attempting an act of vandalism. And if it was Simon, would the SS shoot first and ask questions later? Would he be sent to a concentration camp? What if the nervous sweat rolling down my back made the tape around my waist come loose and the blueprints for Project 1065 slipped out of my shirt? What if the Nazis still didn't pick me for the team after I'd turned Simon and my parents in? A flashlight clicked on, catching Simon full in the face. He looked genuinely startled. He flinched as if to run, but another flashlight clicked on, and another, and Simon blinked and raised his hands against the light that held him in place. It was obvious there were too many of us for him to run away. Simon was caught. Knowing what's to come. Where are your parents? SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer asked me. I... I don't know. They were supposed to be with him, I said giving the answer my mother and father had prepared for me. The embassy, go, go, Trumbauer said, dispatching some of his soldiers. Find them. I held my breath as the soldiers ran off into the night. I prayed my parents wouldn't be caught. They should already have been gone from the city hours ago, but it was a long way from Berlin to Dublin, and they would have very few allies along the way. SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer walked up close to Simon, who was being held by two SS men. Simon wasn't squirming or trying to get away. You should know, it was the O'Shaughnessy's son who turned you in. Turned his parents in, too, Trumbauer said, with unmitigated delight. It wasn't enough that he'd caught Simon. He wanted to rub my betrayal in his face. Michael? Simon said, searching the darkness. Michael, say it isn't so. The heartbreak in his voice was so real I thought my own heart would explode. How could anybody do this to someone else? But I had a part to play, or else this would all be for nothing. I pushed through the other SRD boys in the darkness and stepped into the light. You're an enemy of the state, I told Simon, my voice shaky. And my parents broke the laws of Germany hiding you. But even worse, they broke the laws of human nature. They betrayed the Aryan race by hiding a Jew. I said the word like an insult, like profanity. How can you say that? Simon asked. How can you believe any of it? I stood taller, making sure the flashlights caught my puffed-up chest, my upturned chin. Because I belong to Hitler now. I can see that you do, Simon said. Well, if you belong to Hitler, why don't you go to him? 
Go to the devil. One of the soldiers slammed the stock of his rifle into Simon's stomach, and Simon doubled over in pain. I had to resist crying out for the soldier to stop, and did my best to hold back my tears. The boy in me was scared for what was going to happen to Simon now, scared to be on my own for the very first time in my life. I took a deep breath and tried to remember to be a man. I wonder, Michael, Simon said, still hunched over in pain. Did you ever hear the one about the Englishman, the Irishman, and the Scotsman who were all lined up in front of a firing squad? I couldn't believe Simon was telling jokes here, now. I didn't even have a chance to stammer a response before he went on. The lads are told they each can have a final request. The Scotsman says, I'd like to hear Scotland the Brave played on the bagpipes before I'm shot, to remind me of the old country. And the Irishman says, I'd like to hear Danny Boy sung by Gracie Fields before I'm shot, to remind me of the old country. So, knowing what's to come, the Englishman says, I'd like to be shot first. Simon yanked himself free, decked the closest SS man, and sprinted down the tunnel. Whistles blew, people shouted, shots rang out. Simon fell. No. Without thinking, I ran to him, but luckily others did, too. One of the SS was already kneeling down beside him when I got there. He's dead, he said. Anything and everything. He died while trying to escape. There was almost happiness in SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer's voice as he said it. One more dead Jew and an enemy soldier to boot. No sucker punch, no broken bone had ever hurt so much as this. My knees went weak, like I was up on the rooftop with Simon all over again, the bombs exploding all around us. It was all I could do to stay on my feet, to not double over and sob like a baby. I couldn't keep the tears from streaming down my face, though, and I turned away so no one would see. Simon had meant to do this all along, I realized. As soon as he'd suggested I turn him in, he'd planned to get shot. To die trying to escape rather than be taken alive by the Nazis. He knew what was to come, even if he pretended it didn't matter. If they took him alive, they would torture him, and eventually he'd tell them about stealing the plans for Project 1065. Maybe even tell them about me and how I had helped him. He died to protect me, to protect his mission. Committed suicide by Nazi. Now they couldn't torture Simon Cohen, and he couldn't reveal any secrets, because Simon Cohen was dead. Why do you cry? S.S. Obersturmführer Trumbauer asked, shining his light in my face. I hurriedly wiped away my tears. I... I can't believe my parents threw their lives away for this filth, I said, thinking fast. I can't believe they didn't see that he who serves the Führer serves Germany, and whoever serves Germany serves God. It was Nazi claptrap propaganda... But SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer nodded with approval. He put a comforting hand on my shoulder. 
It was all I could do not to flinch away from it. You have done well, Michael, SS Oberstumführer Trumbauer told me. Very well. You have done more for Hitler tonight than most men twice your age. He called Fritz and Otmar and Erhard over with a flick of his head, and I tried not to watch as Simon's body was dragged away by the others. In fact, as his Obersturmführer Trumbauer said, I am in charge of training a select group of young men such as yourself for a very special mission for the Fuhrer, and we have an open position as a team. He nodded at Fritz. Crax here has suggested you for the job, and I quite agree with his recommendation. Fritz smiled. I would have too if I hadn't just watched Simon gunned down in cold blood. I thought of my parents somewhere out there in the cold, dark night on the run from the Nazis. At least it all hadn't been for nothing. I would give anything and everything to be on that team. I told SS Obersturmführer Trumbauer. And I already had. 8,422 feet. The cable car bumped and juddered as it went over one of the pylons that supported it during its 4,000-foot climb. I closed my eyes and gripped the metal bench so hard it left deep lines in my skin. I felt lightheaded. And not just because of the thin air of the Swiss Alps. Standing at the base of the aerial tramway in Muren, I had watched the tiny little cable cars as they moved up and down the mountain, hanging from spiderweb-thin cables that snaked up into the snow-capped peaks above us. Now I was inside one of those little trams, dangling a hundred feet over a sea of green fir trees and white snow. Not that I was looking out the window. I think I can see my house from here, Otmar said. He and Erhard both ran back and forth across the cabin, weaving between the other passengers for the best views. I wished they would just sit still. Every time they moved from one side to the other, I could feel the cabin sway left to right, right to left. Is your friend going to be all right? A woman asked Fritz, who sat beside me. He looks a little green. Something he ate, Fritz said. All this time, and he was still covering for me, still helping me hide the fact that I was deathly afraid of heights. I was better with heights now than I ever had been. Able to actually step onto a cable car I knew was about to climb up the second half of an 8,422-foot-tall mountain, for example, but only because of the work I'd done with Simon. Simon. Whenever I closed my eyes, all I could see was him looking up at me, punching an SS officer, running, twisting as the bullets hit him, falling. I saw it play out in my head over and over again like a piece of broken film. Why did you have to do it, Simon? Surely there had to have been some other way. I wrenched my eyes open. The brilliant blue of the alpine sky glared back at me through the windows. So many windows, and I quickly stared at the floor. I had to ignore what I knew lay just outside the walls and floor of the cabin. Space, empty air, nothing. 
An Irishman, a Scotsman, and an Englishman apply for a chauffeur's job, I thought, trying to distract myself remembering Simon. I'm such a good driver. I can go within six inches of a cliff and not drive off, says the Scotsman. I'm such a good driver. I can go within one inch of a cliff and not drive off, says the Englishman. Oh, yeah, says the Irishman. Well, I'm such a good driver. I stay as far away from cliffs as I can. The long arm atop the cable car rumbled across another pylon, and I put a hand to my mouth for fear I'd puke all over the lady standing in front of us. Zatvich doesn't destroy us, makes us stronger, Fritz said, quoting an old German philosopher the Nazis loved. The last thing I needed right now was Nazi platitudes, but I nodded. I had to keep playing the part of the zealous Hitler youth for a little while longer anyway. There it is, someone said at last. The resort! The Waiting Snake The Edelweiss Resort clung to the side of a mountain a few hundred feet below the peak, its spindly-looking wooden pillars supporting decks that stuck out into the air. It was all golden-brown wood and soft glowing lights and pointy A-frame roofs covered with windows and terraces that offered guests incredible sweeping long-distance views of the valley far below. Basically, it was an acrophobe's worst nightmare. My legs wobbled as I left the cable car, but I was glad to be back on solid ground, even if that solid ground was 8,000 feet in the air. I kept my back to the view and my eyes on the resort, where all the passengers were queuing up in a Watterschlange, a waiting snake, German for a long line, to go through security. Security. The Swiss soldiers at the doors were going through the bags of each of the attendees and patting each of them down. For weapons, I guessed, though one man in the full-dress uniform of a country I didn't recognize was led through with the sword on his belt. They were searching for guns then. Guns and explosives. I glanced at Fritz and the other two boys. Each of us carried two cases, one with our clothes and another with the scientific equipment to assemble our fake science projects. To attend the conference, we were posing as junior scientists, and the kits were our cover. I had no idea what the plan was, how we were supposed to assassinate Professor Goldsmith. Only Otmar knew the plan, which he promised he would tell us when we got to the resort. Did he carry a rifle in his second suitcase? A bomb? If the Swiss guards at the door discovered the weapon we were to use to kill Professor Goldsmith, if they caught us and sent us back to Germany with our tails between our legs, then my job would be done for me. My parents, Simon, they would have sacrificed themselves for nothing. But the professor would be safe, and that's what mattered now. What I was worried about were the plans for Project 1065 taped around my stomach. One simple pat to the side of my body, and the guards would feel the tape there. Open my shirt, reveal the jet fighter plans I was still carrying. They might not care that I was hiding papers on my body, but Otmar and Erhard and Fritz would care. I would never leave this resort with the plans, if I left the resort alive at all. The waiting snake slithered closer to the Swiss guards at the door 
and the plans felt like a stone hanging around my waist. I had to get rid of the papers before we went through security, put them somewhere safe where I could retrieve them on the way out. A low stone wall separated the aerial tramway station from the small plaza where we waited. That cable car was the only way out of the resort, the only way down the mountain. I'll be right back, I told Fritz, Otmar, and Erhardt. I broke away from the line and went behind the low wall. I felt along it for a loose stone and finally found one about the right size. I would hide the plans here in the stone wall where they would be safe from snow and Nazi assassins and Swiss guards, then come back for them on the way to the cable car when I was leaving. I had to duck not to be seen over the low wall. I unbuttoned my shirt enough to reach inside and undid the medical tape Ma had given me to strap the plans to my skin. At last, they were free, and I pulled out the thick packet of papers. What are you doing? A voice asked. A thorough security check. I was so surprised, I nearly jumped off the mountain. It was Fritz. He was staring down at me from the other side of the wall. I hastily stuffed the jet plans back inside my shirt and kept my hand there, bent double to hide them. Had Fritz seen me pull them out? I, I still feel sick from the cable car ride, I told Fritz, which was truer than I wanted to admit. I just, I came back here in case I needed to throw up so the others wouldn't see. Will you cover for me? Of course, Fritz said. Take whatever time you need. Fritz disappeared, and I let out the breath I'd been holding. My heart was still racing from the scare, and my fingers fumbled the packet as I withdrew it again. I pulled the stone from the wall, worked the plans as far inside the hole as I could, and wedged the stone back into place. It stuck a few inches out from the wall, making it pretty easy to find again. I came back to Fritz, Otmar, and Erhardt just as they reached the Swiss guards at the door. The Swiss wore gray uniforms with red collars signifying their rank, but where other countries would use stars, the little pips were shaped like Edelweiss. You're fine to go through, the Swiss guard at the door said, waving us inside without checking our bags or patting us down. I couldn't believe it. They were just going to let us through? Because we were children? It was just like Ma had told me. Women and children make terrific spies because people always underestimate us. So this was why the Nazis sent boys to do the work of men. Did no one else have any idea what monsters the Hitler Youth were? What we were capable of? What we had been training to do since we were ten? They didn't even take our daggers from us. They... You're not going to... I started to say, but Otmar pulled me through the door with the rest of them, and we were inside. Fritz murmured something to Otmar, who nodded and sent Fritz on some assignment. I looked around for another Swiss soldier. They were all over the resort. I had to get word to one of them, let them know what was happening. Then they could search our bags and see why the team had been sent. I headed for a blonde guard in the lobby. Otmar grabbed my shirt and pulled me back. No wondering, he said. Let's get to our room. It's time to set up our experiment.
the science experiment. Otmar emptied the contents of his suitcase out on one of the beds in our room. I scanned the equipment, looking for a gun, a bomb, anything, but it was only a random collection of scientific equipment, just like mine. I frowned. Empty Ziazes, Otmar told us. Gerhardt and I overturned the scientific suitcases onto the bed. It was a kudelmoodle. There was nothing dangerous or suspicious in it that I could see. Find the pieces with the red dots, Otmar told us. He held one up to show us the little red dot painted on it. Fritz came back from whatever errand he'd been sent on, gave Otmar a cryptic nod, and then the four of us sifted through the equipment until we found all the ones with red dots and separated them out. Otmar swept all the other equipment off the bed with a theatrical clatter. With practiced skill, he quickly assembled the pieces with the red dots into one hole that fit exactly into one of the four scientific suitcases. A bomb, Fritz said. It was a bomb. It was obvious now. Wires, battery, a timer, and what looked like enough explosives to blow the top off the mountain. Otmar smiled. Gentlemen, I give you our science project. Even if the Swiss soldiers had searched our suitcases, they would never have found the bomb. It had been split up into pieces and hidden among the random useless equipment in our four suitcases. This is why they needed four of us, and why nothing else mattered but our fervent devotion to the Fuhrer. We were nothing but four loyal mules, our suitcases packed with death. Nazi Germany's chief export... Otmar snapped the latches closed on the suitcase bomb and replaced it on the bed with one of the other empty scientific suitcases. Quickly now, he told us. The civilian clothes from your suitcases, your papers, your money, only what you'll need for the trip home. Pack them together in here. This was part of the plan we had at least all been briefed on, our escape. Once the deed was done... We were to descend the mountain and make our way by train to the border, posing as four Swiss boys on holiday. We had fake passports and everything. The border guards would be waiting to let us back into Germany, where we would be received with a hero's welcome. On the train from Berlin, Otmar and Erhardt had talked endlessly about what medals we would receive. The medals would be more impressive, they reasoned, if we lost an arm or a leg on our mission. I would have to see what I could do to help them achieve that goal, at least. When the other suitcase was packed, Otmar snapped it closed and set it next to the one with the bomb. Earhart and I will pant the bomb. The detonator is preset to 15 minutes, Otmar told us. Quex, you and Michael will go to the front desk and tell them you see a crack in the snowpack above the resort. The resort administrators will then sound the avalanche alarm, at which point the guests will be herded into the safety of the hotel's basement, deep inside the mountain. That is where the bomb will be set. Fifteen minutes later, the bomb will detonate, and everyone inside will be killed. Everybody? I said. I thought we were just here to kill Professor Goldsmith. Otmar shrugged. What do a few more dead scientists matter? None of them are German. Otmar checked his watch, then handed Fritz a suitcase. 
You will carry the suitcase for our escape. You must hurry when you go to the front desk. Once the bomb is activated, it cannot be turned off. You must sound the alarm at precisely the same moment we turn on the timer. That will give the hotel staff just enough time to get everyone to the basement before the bomb goes off. We will meet you at the cable car and ride back down together. Synchronize watches. Wait, we're doing this now? I said. I panicked. I had thought I'd at least have a chance to approach a guard during the conference, let them know what the plan was. Otmar picked up the suitcase with the bomb in it. Goldsmith is already here. Quick saw him in the lobby. So that's what Fritz's mission had been. Find Goldsmith. There is no reason to wait, Otmar said. He patted the suitcase. We will do our job and be well on our way home to our reward when our science project here goes off. My heart was thumping so hard I was sure the other boys could hear it. My eyes flicked from the suitcase bomb to Otmar to Earhart to Fritz. I could beat each of them in a straight fight, but not all together, not all at once, not here. How was I going to stop them? We go now, Otmar said. For Hitler. For Hitler, the other boys cried. And the mission to assassinate Professor Hendrik Goldsmith began before I could stop it. Coming clean. Otmar and Earhart ran one way down the hall and Fritz and I ran the other. Fritz carried the suitcase with our clothes in it. Fritz, we can't do this, I told him. Dozens of innocent people will be killed. Hundreds. Hundreds of innocent people are killed all over Germany each night when the bombs fall, Fritz said. This is no different. There was no changing his mind. No changing any of their minds. Fritz turned a corner. Instead of following him, I pulled up short and sprinted in the other direction, looking for a Swiss soldier. If Fritz noticed I wasn't behind him, he wouldn't stop. He had a schedule to keep. It felt like forever, but was probably just a minute or two before I found a Swiss soldier. I ran up to him out of breath and hurriedly tried to explain. The boys I came with, they have a bomb. They're going to, to blow up the resort. You have to stop them. It took another agonizingly long few minutes for the Swiss guard to confer with his lieutenant and for me to explain all over again. It's in a suitcase. Two boys have it, I told them. I can show you there. Finally, the soldiers let me lead them down the stairs to the basement. We caught Otmar and Earhart looking for a place to hide the suitcase among the stacked up chairs and tables and storage crates. Otmar still had it in his hands. There, that's it, I told the soldiers. The bomb's in that suitcase. I was exposing myself now, letting Otmar and Earhart know I was a traitor in their midst. But it didn't matter. It was all going to be over soon. It was time to come clean. The soldiers pointed rifles at the boys, and Otmar and Earhart held up their hands. The Swiss lieutenant took the suitcase from them, set it gently on the floor, and flipped the latches. I flinched, worried the bomb might go off before its timer. The Swiss soldier lifted the lid slowly, carefully, and we all saw what was inside. 
a messy pile of clothing. A silly prank. The bomb wasn't in the suitcase. I shook my head and took a step back. But no, I had watched Otmar put the bomb in the suitcase. I'd seen him pick it up and take it with him. Had they doubled back and picked up one of the others? No, there wouldn't have been time. We'd left the room together, each of our teams with a suitcase. Understanding hit me like an avalanche. Fritz. Fritz and I had carried the suitcase with the bomb, not Otmar and Earhart. They'd known all along I was a traitor. They tricked me into revealing my hand, and now Fritz was somewhere loose in the hotel with a bomb. Otmar looked innocent. I don't know what this is all about, he told the soldiers. Michael told us our rooms were in the basement, but there don't appear to be any guest rooms down here. The Swiss lieutenant frowned at me. A joke, then? Is that what this is? A silly prank? Send your friends down here looking for their room, and then drag us after them, telling us they're carrying a bomb? A bomb? Earhart said. He looked at me in horror. Michael, a joke is a joke, but telling them they're carrying a bomb, and with a war going on, no less? No, I told the soldiers. They're lying. You don't understand. We take bomb threats very seriously in this country, the lieutenant told me. He took me by the arm. There are penalties for making false alarms. As if on cue, alarm bells rang throughout the resort. The Swiss soldiers looked up in a panic. The avalanche warning, one of them said. No, wait, I told them. This was part of the plan. It's a distraction. The lieutenant ignored me. Avalanche alarms trumped boys who cried wolf any day. Stay here, he told us. Don't leave this room. You're safe in this room. The Swiss soldiers ran from the room, and suddenly I was alone with Otmar and Earhart. Otmar smiled wolfishly at me. Earhart cracked his knuckles. Otmar took a step toward me, fists clenched. You heard what the man said, Michael. Don't leave the room. You're safe here. Professor Hendrik Goldsmith. I ran for the door, but one of them grabbed me by the shirt and yanked me back. Otmar? Earhart? I swung as I turned, my fist glancing off somebody's cheekbone in the same moment one of them kicked me in the shin. Pain flared through me like a firebomb, but I couldn't think about it. A fist found my stomach doubling me over. A knee found my face knocking me back. I slammed into a stack of chairs three times as tall as me, the tower of seats swaying precariously as I clung to it, trying to stay on my feet. And suddenly I was back in that schoolyard in London again, remembering that if you fell down, it was over. I wiped my dripping nose. Otmar and Earhart grinned like hyenas and converged on me. Rage coursed through my veins. If Hitler wanted his youth to learn how to take a beating, I would give these two boys their final lesson. The same lesson I'd taught to Horst. No, 
No, I don't have time for this. The alarm was still going off. Any minute now, people would start flooding into this room, hiding out from an avalanche that wasn't coming. Fritz still had the suitcase bomb. He was the one I had to find, the one I had to stop. But Otmar and Earhart were standing in the way. I grabbed the swaying stack of chairs behind me and pulled. The tower came crashing down on the boys, knocking them aside. I bolted for the door and ran for the stairs. Guests were already streaming down them. They weren't stampeding, but they were moving quickly. Men in suits and ties, women in nice dresses, scientists and thinkers from around the Western world. I couldn't let these people die. The top of the stairs was crowded, and I was running the wrong way. A soldier tried to turn me around, but I slipped under his arm and charged ahead, running straight into a short, thin man with curly black hair and round glasses. Professor Goldsmith? I said. I recognized him from a photograph the science team had been shown. Are you Professor Hendrik Goldsmith? I, yes, he said, surprised to be recognized. The current of people took us back toward the stairs. Professor Goldsmith, you have to come with me. I told him. I tried to pull him away. No, but the alarms, the avalanche, he said, pulling me with him. We had each other by the arms, each tugging in the opposite direction. You can't go down there, I told him. Your life is in danger. A group of boys have been sent from Germany to kill you. A few of the people streaming around us for the basement turned to look at us when they heard that, but they didn't stop. Kill me? But how? Why? Because of your work. I leaned in close and lowered my voice. Because of your work on the atomic bomb. Professor Goldsmith's eyes went wide. He pulled me out of the flow of traffic over to the wall, where we had a bit more privacy. But, but, how can you know that? Because the Nazis know it, I told him. Gah, this was taking too long. Look at me. Look at this uniform. I was on the team sent to kill you, but I'm Irish. I switched to speaking English. I'm a spy for the Allies. I was sent here to save you. Goldsmith let me pull him along away from the basement as he struggled to understand. But you're just a boy. My father is the Irish ambassador to Germany, I told him. Was the Irish ambassador. We found out too late to tell anyone else. They had to send me. But this is... this is incredible. Goldsmith stopped in an empty hallway next to a table with a vase full of Edelweiss flowers. Switzerland is neutral. Do you think the Nazis care? I asked him. As if to prove my point, Otmar jumped us from behind. Dreams of Metals Otmar threw himself at Goldsmith with a roar. He drove the professor into the table, knocking him and the vase to the carpet. Otmar raised his dagger to plunge it into Goldsmith's heart, but I tackled him first. We tumbled head over heels, kicking and punching and scrabbling for control of his dagger. Otmar ended up on top of me, his dagger pointed at my throat. I pushed back with one hand and groped beside me with the other. I felt the knife tip nick my throat. Felt the warm trickle of blood run down the side of my neck, and then my free hand found it, the flower vase. 
I whipped it up into the side of Otmar's head, shattering it. It rang with a high, hollow clang like a church bell, and Otmar crashed into the wall unconscious. It wasn't a lost limb, but maybe there was a medal you could get for brain damage. Professor Goldsmith helped me to my feet and gave me a handkerchief to stop the bleeding on my neck. Do you believe me now? I asked him. He nodded emphatically. I grabbed his arm and pulled him along. Forget Fritz and the bomb. If I could get Goldsmith out of here, Fritz wouldn't blow the place up. Not when Earhart told him Goldsmith wasn't in the basement. Goldsmith was the mission. They could blow this resort to kingdom come, but they couldn't come back to Germany if they didn't blow up Goldsmith with it. Wait, Goldsmith said, pulling me to a stop. What now? They have to find Otto Strassmann, Goldsmith said. He's an Austrian physicist. He's why I'm here. I'm supposed to recruit him for the Manhattan Project and take him with me back to the United States. I couldn't believe this guy. Did you not see Otmar try to kill you just now? Who's more important, you or this Strassmann guy? Goldsmith straightened his glasses. Well, Strassmann's done excellent work on the thermodynamics of superconductors, but I was the one who first proposed the idea of electron spin. I had no idea what he was talking about. You win, I told him. You can try and recruit him another time when somebody isn't trying to kill you. I grabbed Goldsmith by the sleeve and pulled him along. I kept my eyes peeled for Fritz as we ran for the lobby of the resort, but he wasn't anywhere. I hauled Goldsmith out the front door and headed for the cable car. Goldsmith looked worriedly up at the snow-capped mountain behind the resort. But what about the avalanche? There isn't an avalanche, I told him. That was just to get everybody into the basement so they could blow you up with a bomb. Good God, Goldsmith said. Yeah, I said. Wait here. I ran for the place where I tucked the plans for Project 1065. I was getting out of here with Goldsmith and the jet fighter plans. I was going to get more medals than Otmar and Earhart could even dream about. I was just imagining Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, pinning the Victoria Cross on my shirt when I pulled the stone from the wall and froze. The Project 1065 plans were gone. Mad as hell. The hole was empty. I checked again. Had I found the wrong stone? No, this was the right place. This was the right stone. The jet fighter plans were gone. But how? If the stone had fallen out and the plans had blown away, the stone would be on the ground, not stuck back in the hole. Which meant someone had come along behind me, pulled out the stone, taken the plans, and put the stone back where I'd left it. And there was only one person I could think of who'd done it. Fritz. He had seen me pull the plans out of my shirt. That's what he'd been talking to Otmar about in the lobby of the resort. Otmar might have sent him out to look for Goldsmith, but he'd also sent him to see what I'd stuck in the wall. My heart sank. They'd known since we left our hotel room that I was a traitor. That's how Otmar had known to switch suitcases. To send the bomb with Fritz. 
They knew I'd lose Fritz as soon as I could run and tell on Otmar and Erhard, while Fritz ran free to finish the assassination. An icy chill swept through me. Fritz knew I'd betrayed him. Not just today, but all along. When he looked at what I'd hidden in the wall, he would have known at once what they were. He would know why I'd come over to his house all those times, why I'd joined the SRD with him, why I'd pretended to be his friend. He would know it was all to steal the jet fighter plans out from under his nose and hand them over to the Allies. Fritz was still out there with the bomb, and he was mad as hell. We have to get out of here, I told Goldsmith, pushing him toward the cable car station. Now! Another tram was just reaching the station. A few people were on it, and we pushed past them to get on board. I got a glimpse of the long, long drop down the mountainside as I put Goldsmith in a seat, and I almost blacked out right then and there. It was only the adrenaline coursing through my system that kept me awake. I grabbed for one of the hand straps that hung from the ceiling and wrapped myself around one of the poles. I wanted to close my eyes, to sink to the floor and pass out, but I couldn't. Fritz might come running for the tram any second now, suitcase bomb in hand. I had to protect Goldsmith. had to get him to safety. Eyes fluttering, I unsnapped the Hitler Youth dagger on my belt and hugged the pole, willing myself to stay awake, to stay on my feet. When you fell down, it was over. Did you hear the one about the Englishman, the Irishman, and the Scotsman, who were all staying at the world's tallest hotel? I asked Goldsmith, without turning around. Um, no, I can't say I have, Goldsmith said. The glass doors to the tram slid shut, and the cable car moved away from the station. We'd made it. I'll tell you later, I said, and I gave in and slumped to the ground at last. Something big and heavy thumped on the roof of the cable car, and I jerked awake. The metal blade of a dagger was sticking through the roof, keeping whoever had jabbed it there from sliding off the top of the car. The dagger had words on it. From where I sat, pulled helplessly on the floor... I could read them. Blood and honor. Fritz was on the roof of the cable car. For the glory of old Ireland. A brown suitcase dipped below the edge of the roof. I could see it through the window. Fritz's head peeked through the window upside down. He saw me, saw Professor Goldsmith and then he and the suitcase disappeared again. Fritz was on the roof of the cable car, and he had the suitcase bomb. He had waited for us. He knew I'd go for Professor Goldsmith and try to get him out of the resort. Fritz had waited for us on top of the cable car station, watched us get on board, separated us from the others so he could kill us. Professor Goldsmith stood and went to the window, trying to see up top. What's going on? Who's that boy? He's... he's one of the ones sent to kill you, I said. I closed my eyes and fought off my nausea. I wished Goldsmith would sit down. He was making the cabin rock. His name is Fritz. He has a bomb. A bomb? What if he blows us up? He'll die too. 
He doesn't care, I told him. He was born to die for Germany. I'd said it sarcastically, but I realized suddenly that it was true. Fritz believed all that stuff about sacrificing himself for the fatherland, for Hitler. He would do it. He would fulfill the Hitler Youth motto, live faithfully, fight bravely, and die laughing. Goldsmith fretted around the cabin like a caged chicken. But they're trapped in here. It's a 40-minute ride to the bottom. And the bomb had a 15-minute timer. I knew the score. We were in trouble. We were going to die. We have to get up there, Goldsmith said. We have to stop him. He blew us all up. I nodded. He was right. But I couldn't be the one to do it. Goldsmith didn't wait for me to help him. He tried the doors first, but those were locked tight, of course. They didn't want anybody accidentally opening them and falling to their death. He tried the windows next and managed to get one of them open. He did all this while I lay curled around one of the poles in the middle of the cabin, fighting desperately not to black out. I opened a window, but I can't fit, Goldsmith said. You could, so. I would have laughed if I wasn't afraid I would throw up. I'll fall. I'll die, I told him. Young man, listen to me, Goldsmith said. He has a bomb, and if he's as crazy as you say he is, he'll use it. One way or another, you're going to die. We both are. Wouldn't you rather die fighting? I'm such a good driver. I stay as far away from cliffs as I can, I told him. Remembering my joke, Goldsmith didn't understand, but I knew Simon would. And I also knew Simon would be telling me to get up, to confront my fear. Simon had died fighting rather than be led quietly to his death, and he'd want me to do the same. I pulled myself up the pole to my knees. I kept my eyes on the floor. Did you hear the one about the Englishman, the Irishman? The Scotsman and a Welshman who were riding in a hot air balloon? I know, Goldsmith said. Is this really a time for jokes? I pulled myself to my feet. The balloon was about to crash into a mountain, I went on. So the pilot says to them, We need to lose more weight to get clear. One of you has to jump. I took a step across the cabin, going from one pole to the other. So the Scotsman... The Scotsman, he says, I do this for the glory of Scotland. And he jumps out of the basket. I let go of the pole and grabbed hold of the window. Goldsmith was right. It was just big enough for me to climb through. Outside, a white and brown mountain peak sailed by. The tram rumbled as it went over one of the pylons that supported the cable, and I swallowed hard. But the balloon wasn't high enough yet. We need to lose more weight, the pilot says. So the Welshman says, I do this for the glory of Wales, and jumps out of the balloon to his death. I don't understand how any of this, Goldsmith started to say, but I held up a hand to quiet him. I steadied my breathing and stepped up onto the bench below the window. We need to lose the weight of just one more person, and we'll make it. The pilot says, I reached outside the window, felt the cold mountain air humming by. 
found a ledge on the roof to pull myself up on. So the Irishman, he says, I do this for the glory of old Ireland. And he picks up the Englishman and throws him over the side. I looked back at Goldsmith. He was frowning as though he didn't understand. For the glory of old Ireland, I said, and I hauled myself up and out the window. Don't look down. Wind whipped my hair into my face. The metal ledge of the roof was cold and hard under my fingers, bit into my skin. I worked my feet onto the windowsill and raised my head. I couldn't see the roof because I had my eyes squeezed shut. I should probably open them at some point if I plan on actually climbing on top of the cable car, I realized. But right then, I was just fine with them closed. I was just fine standing here on top of the window, not looking. But I didn't have time for this. Fritz was up there with a bomb. Did you hear the one about... Did you hear the one about? I couldn't do it. Couldn't focus. I lost control of my breathing. Started hyperventilating. If I didn't move soon, I was going to fall. I was going to fall and Fritz was going to blow Professor Goldsmith into the atoms he liked to study. You have to open your eyes, Michael. There's no other way to do it. I opened my eyes. All I saw was the white painted top of the aerial tram, curving up and away from me, blue sky beyond. Good. This was good. I could do this. I could do this. Just don't look down, I told myself. Don't look down. Don't look down. I looked down. Fir trees, giant fir trees, and the tops of them were far below me. I could see all the way down them, all the way to the snowy forest floor. The earth shrank away from me and came screaming at me at the same time. My brain detached from the rest of my body, floated away, and I was outside myself again, watching my body go slack, watching my hands let go, watching my feet slide off the windowsill, watching myself fall. Might makes right. A hand grabbed mine, held on like a pit bull, pulled me up over the edge until I lay dazed and addled in the middle of the cable car's roof, Fritz panting beside me. Fritz! Fritz had saved me from falling. That's two, Fritz said. Two times he had saved me from falling. Two times he had saved my life. Why do I keep saving you? Fritz asked me. I wondered the same thing. The metal roof under me made my skin crawl. Or maybe it was how exposed I was up here on the roof. The wind, a living thing that pushed at me, nudged me, trying to throw off my balance, trying to push me over the side. When you fell down, it was over. I dragged myself to the arm that connected the center of the roof to the thick metal cables higher above us. It was too big to wrap my arms around, but I put my back to it, taking a little shelter from the wind. Fritz stood in the middle of the roof, the wind pushing and pulling at his clothes. The suitcase lay on its side between his feet. He looked like Hitler's man-god up here, 
Zeus standing atop Mount Olympus, a lightning bolt in his hand. Right at this moment, Fritz ruled the world. The only world that mattered to the two of us. I'm impressed, Fritz said. I know how hard it was for you to do that. You're learning to overcome your fear. That's good. That which doesn't destroy us, I said, my voice weak, almost carried away on the wind. Makes us stronger. Yes, Fritz said. The cable car rumbled past another pylon, and Fritz rode the lurching tram like an old sailor standing his ground in a storm. You did that for me, Michael. You made me stronger. You taught me how to fight back. Maybe that's why I keep saving you. Because you saved me. Made you into a monster, you mean? Fritz frowned. Is a wolf a monster for eating the rabbit? Is a hawk a monster for eating the mouse? All life is struggle, Michael. He who wants to live should fight for himself. He who doesn't fight doesn't deserve to live. Might makes right, I said. Yes, exactly, Fritz said. This is the law of nature. This is why Germany will win. Slowly, I felt myself coming back to life. Felt my arms and legs and head as though they were all attached to my brain again, not separate things floating away from each other. My chest still heaved from the panic of falling, but it was settling down, slowing. I had to get control. I had to be here for this. As wrong as Fritz was about everything else, he was right about one thing. If I didn't fight for myself now, I wasn't going to live. Fritz, Fritz, listen to me. You're not a monster. I know it. That's why you separated us from the rest of the guests at the resort. So you wouldn't kill all those innocent people. You don't have to kill Professor Goldsmith. You don't have to kill me. You don't have to kill yourself. There's another way out of all this. You don't have to start that timer. Oh, I'm sorry, Michael. I don't think you understand, Fritz said. I already did. The new Michael. My body sank. If Fritz had already started the timer, we had only minutes left, maybe seconds. How long ago had he turned it on? How long had it taken me to climb out that window, for him to pull me up on the roof? How long had I been lying here just talking to him? I had to do something. I should be mad at you, you know, Fritz said calmly, as if he hadn't just told me the bomb between his feet was ticking down to our deaths. He pulled a packet of papers from inside his shirt and held them up for me to see. The plans for Project 1065. All that time, you weren't really my friend, Fritz said. You were just using me. It was like that at first, I told him. But I really did become your friend. I still am. Fritz shook his head. No, you're not my friend. He waved the jet fighter plans at me. You're the enemy, and I beat you. Fritz ripped the packet of papers open, and the wind tore them away. They disappeared over the side, lost forever in the alpine forest below. All that work, gone with the wind. The gaping pit in my stomach grew wider. Now the Allies would never match the Germans in the air. 
the war would end before Goldsmith or anybody else could build an atomic bomb. I should be mad at you, but I'm not, Fritz said. I respect you for what you did. You're fighting for what you believe in. There's honor in that, even if you're wrong. There's honor in kicking that suitcase over the side, too, I told him. There's honor in a fair fight, in not killing your enemies when they can't fight back, not murdering them. Fritz smiled and spread his arms wide, swaying a little in the wind. If you want to kick this suitcase over the side, come to it. He was teasing me. He knew I wouldn't do it. Knew I couldn't do it. He was just going to stand there taunting me until the bomb went off because my fear of heights had paralyzed me. But that was the old Michael. The Michael who thought all this was a game. This was the Michael who knew it was real. I pulled myself up on the arm of the cable car, drew my Hitler youth dagger from its sheath, and took a step toward him, ready to fight. Shunk. The look of easy victory on Fritz's face faltered. He hadn't expected me to actually get up. He took a frightened step back, then remembered we were on top of a cable car. He did the German look over his shoulder to get his bearings, planted his feet again, and drew his dagger. With his other hand, he picked up the suitcase with the bomb in it. He wasn't just going to let me kick it off the roof. If I wanted to throw it over the side, I was going to have to take it from him. Fine. Then that's what I would do. The tram rumbled onto another one of the support pylons, and I used that moment to charge him. I swiped at him with my dagger. He jerked back out of the way and threw the suitcase in between us like a shield. The suitcase was heavy, though, too heavy to hold up for long. His arm dropped, and in the opening I gave him a quick jab with my left fist, punching him square in the nose. He staggered a step back and dropped his dagger. It rattled across the rooftop and fell over the side. Fritz's eyes filled with fear. I taught him how to fight but he still wasn't good enough to beat me. I lunged at him with a dagger. He threw the suitcase up again, holding it with both hands. Shunk! My dagger sank four inches into the suitcase, slicing right through the leather case and into the machinery inside. We froze. Me still holding the knife, Fritz still holding the suitcase, waiting for the bomb to explode. It didn't. Thum. Time unfroze. I yanked the knife out, and Fritz reared back with the suitcase to knock me off my feet. Fritz swung, I swung. I ducked, Fritz didn't. The dagger caught him in the arm, tearing a long gash through fabric and skin. Blood sprayed from the tip of my dagger as it cut clean through and Fritz screamed and clapped a hand to his arm. The hand that had been holding the suitcase. It clattered to the roof, slid down the curve, and caught on the ledge. Fritz and I gave each other the same startled look, then dove for the suitcase at the same time. We hit the roof with a thump, and the suitcase bounced over the side and plummeted into the snowpack far below. 
No! No! Fritz screamed. He turned and started beating wildly on me with his fists the way he had the first day he'd fought back in the classroom, not really hurting me so much as disorienting me. I dropped my dagger, and Fritz snatched it up before it slid away. He climbed to his feet. I'll just climb down there and kill him myself, Fritz told me. You can come after me if you want, but this time I'm not going to save you when you fall. Thoom. The suitcase bomb detonated far below us. The shockwaves so strong, I could feel them all the way up here. It didn't do anything but surprise us, sober us. Or so we thought. At first, it sounded like thunder, like the creaking of a metal swing on the playground. Then it turned into a low rumble, like a plane flying high overhead. And then ten planes, and then a hundred planes. And then a waterfall, a never-ending torrent. And then we saw what it was. The explosion had triggered an avalanche. Avalanche. Fritz and I watched, transfixed, as snow roared down the side of the mountain toward the forest of fir trees below. Toward us. At first, I couldn't believe it would possibly reach us. But as the snow rolled down the mountain, giant clouds of it blossomed and roiled, growing bigger and taller. The avalanche was going to hit the cable car. I rolled for the arm at the center of the roof, wrapping my whole body around it just as the first snowburst hit us. The snow stung like sleet, and then the bigger clouds caught us. Snow and rocks slammed into me like gravel fired from a cannon. I heard Fritz cry out but couldn't see him in the storm. I clung to the arm of the cable car and held on as the tram was knocked sideways, sweeping up and away from the avalanche like a flag in the wind. The snow pummeled me, beat me like waves, trying to strip me free, but I held on. And then it was past. The tidal wave of snow rumbled on down the mountain. The aerial tram swung sickingly back down to how it was supposed to hang, and I sucked in a desperate lungful of air, snow and ice still covering every inch of my body. I had hung on, but Fritz hadn't. I was alone on the roof of the cable car. When you fell down, it was over. Untouched by war. The train compartment rocked like the cable car swinging in the sky, but this one was mercifully connected to the ground. I slumped heavily against the window, still stunned that I had been able to save Professor Goldsmith, who sat on the seat across from me. Still stunned that I had fought Fritz on top of a cable car, that I had watched him there, clinging to the roof of the gondola one moment, gone the next. Goldsmith and I had caught a train from Muren to Bern, the capital of Switzerland where there was an Irish embassy just like the one in Berlin. Only this one, presumably, still had an ambassador. Once I handed over Goldsmith, he wasn't my responsibility anymore. Our train rumbled along the sweeping curve of a stone bridge, a lazy crystal blue river below us. Enormous evergreen trees stood like sentinels along hillsides covered in a soft white blanket of snow. A little village with peaked roofs, 
a church steeple, and smoking chimneys glowed yellow-orange in the fading twilight. This was a Europe untouched by war. This was a Europe where no bombs had fallen. No Jews had been rounded up and sent to concentration camps. No tanks had torn the streets up with their treads. Where homes and churches and schools still stood. Where food was plentiful. Where people still greeted one another warmly on the sidewalk without suspicion. This was Switzerland. Protected from the horrors on their doorstep by the thin shield of neutrality. The paper wall of diplomacy and politics. Just like Ireland. But the war that was being fought just outside the borders of Switzerland and just across the Celtic Sea from Ireland wasn't just a war between the Axis and the Allies. It was a world war, and the fate of every nation on Earth, neutral or not, lay in the balance. When the war was over, the world would be ruled one way or the other, by freedom or fascism, by hope or by fear. I had seen the depths, the lengths the Nazis would go to win that war, sacrificing their own children to the cause. And I also knew firsthand the sacrifices the Allies had made to stop them. I wonder, Michael, did you ever hear the one about the Englishman, the Irishman, and the Scotsman who were all lined up in front of a firing squad? Whether they wanted them to or not, Simon and the Allies were fighting to save the world for Switzerland, too. And Ireland. What right did the Swiss, the Irish, the Spanish, anyone have to sit out the fight for the fate of the world when they, too, would live or die by the result? A good man died to save you, I said to Goldsmith, startling him. They were the first words either of us had spoken since we boarded the train, weary from our adventure. My voice sounded harder than I'd meant it to, like an accusation. I didn't ask him to, Goldsmith said defensively. Well, he did, whether you wanted him to or not. I, I'm sorry, Goldsmith said. Don't be sorry, I told him. Just make that bomb. Save the world. Do something that makes your life worth saving. Goldsmith took off his glasses, cleaned them with his handkerchief, and put them back on. I'll do my best, he said. I stared out the window again at the white mountains in the distance. I thought of Simon and of my parents. Where were they right now? In a barn in Germany? Hiding beneath a bridge in Nazi-occupied France? Or had they gone north into Denmark, looking for a ferry to take them across the North Sea to England? Surely they hadn't gone east toward the Russian front. Wherever they were, I prayed they were safe and that I would see them again soon. Our train pulled into Bern less than an hour later. The station agent gave us directions, and the professor and I made our way to the Irish embassy. I spent more than a minute explaining to the lady at the front desk who Goldsmith and I were and why we were there before I realized I was still speaking German and had to start all over again in English. Yes, yes, Michael, the woman said. You've been expected. I have, I asked. We have? By whom? But the lady was already on the phone, excitedly reporting our arrival. 
I heard a familiar voice give a happy cry somewhere down the hall. And then, my mother and father and I were running to meet each other, wrapping one another in one great Irish hug. An Englishman, a Scotsman, and an Irishman. That should be the last of them then, Chief Technician Ross of the Royal Air Force said in his Scottish brogue. He shuffled the papers into a single stack and put his pencil and eraser on top of them. The pencil was blue and had Venus Blue Band Super Thin 3561 number 2 printed on it in white. The eraser said W.H. Smith. I assumed it once said W.H. Smith, but the second H had worn off. You've an absolutely incredible memory for detail, said Agent Faulkner. He was in the SOE, Special Operations Executive, Britain's secret war intelligence organization, and a ramrod English aristocrat to the core. He was probably Lord something or other outside the war, and had gone to university at Oxford or Cambridge, or both. I doubt even I could have reconstructed those plans from memory after all this time, he said. After our happy reunion... My parents and I had flown under cover of night from Bern to London, where we were now. While my parents had spent the last three days being debriefed by the SOE and receiving their new orders from Dublin, I had worked with Chief Technician Ross to rebuild the plants for Project 1065 from memory, exactly the same way Simon and I had in the little secret room at the Irish Embassy. It hadn't been easy, but I'd already done it once in Berlin, why couldn't I do it again here? Now, if the Nazis did build their jet-powered Flugzeug, fly thing, the German word for airplane, the Allies would have one to match them. Have you ever heard the one about the Englishman, the Irishman, and a Scotsman who sold their brains as transplants? I asked Agent Faulkner. The British intelligence officer looked a little taken aback. He glanced at the Scottish engineer who just shook his head and smiled. I'm afraid I haven't, said Agent Faulkner. Well, it turns out the Irishman's and the Scotsman's brains only sold for a hundred pounds, but the Englishman's sold for five thousand pounds. It just goes to prove, said the Englishman, that Englishmen are much cleverer than Irishmen or Scotsmen. No, it doesn't, said the Irishman. It just means Englishman's brain had never been used. Right, Agent Faulkner said, not quite sure what to do with that. Chief Technician Ross tried to hide a smile. Agent Faulkner stood. I think we're about finished here, Chief Technician. The Scotsman gave me an easy salute and collected the papers. Cheers, lad. I joked, but the whole reason I'd been able to remember the plans was down to Simon, my English friend. He was the one who'd helped me hone my memory, the one who'd played Kim's game with me night after night. He was the reason, too, that I'd been able to save Professor Goldsmith from Fritz. Fritz. I thought of him again, standing over me, that bloody Hitler youth dagger in his hands, ready to die for Germany. He had, in the end. Like the Hitler Youth's motto, he'd lived faithfully and fought bravely, but he hadn't died laughing. 
I understand you and your family are off to Washington, D.C. now, Agent Faulkner said when Ross was gone. I nodded. We were going to America. It's a new posting for my father, I said. He reckons it'll be safer there than in Berlin, and Ma is going to help the Yanks with their new intelligence service. I paused, then asked, What about Professor Goldsmith? Is he back in his states working on an atomic bomb? Agent Faulkner cleared his throat. I really couldn't say. Of course not. Loose lips sink ships and all that. So when do I get to meet Mr. Churchill? I asked. Agent Faulkner looked bewildered. Meet Mr. Churchill? You know, to get my medal. Get my picture in all the papers. Faulkner looked uncomfortable. You and your family may yet get a commendation from His Majesty's government, Agent Faulkner said. That's not for me to say. But, Michael, you do understand that you can't say a word about any of this, ever, to anyone. I frowned. What? What do you mean I can't tell anyone? Agent Faulkner sat back down across from me. Michael... It's imperative that you tell no one about what you and your parents have done. Not one bit of it. If you go telling your story, it will be obvious that we've had Irish agents working under Hitler's nose the whole war. That we still do have Irish agents in the field. What's wrong with that? I asked. People should know. Michael, it's vital that we maintain the illusion of Ireland's neutrality. It may yet be valuable to us. I'm afraid everything you've seen and heard, everything you and your parents have done for the war effort, falls under the Official Secrets Act. You're forbidden from telling anyone what happened under penalty of imprisonment. I couldn't believe it. My mother and father had been sending valuable intelligence to the Allies for years. I had just risked my life and theirs and sacrificed Simon's life to get the plans for Project 1065 to save Professor Goldsmith. And now we couldn't tell anybody about it? It's not fair, I told Faulkner. Welcome to the world of international espionage, Agent Faulkner said, and he got up to leave. He stopped and gave me a sympathetic look. I'm afraid you'll just have to sleep well in the knowledge that you and your family have done your part to win the war. I huffed. It wasn't enough. I wanted the world to know what I'd done, what Ma and Da had done. But then I remembered riding on the train through Switzerland with Goldsmith, feeling bitter about Ireland's neutrality in the war. The truth was... Ireland wasn't sitting on the sidelines. We had done something. We were just fighting in a different way. Even though nobody would ever know what I'd done, what my ma and da had done, what Ireland had done, we'd stood up to Hitler and the Nazis with the rest of the Allies. We'd fought for freedom, too. Author's Note in modern history, young people were perhaps never used so much to fight a war as they were in Nazi Germany during World War II. At the beginning of the war, when things were going well for the Nazis, 
German children worked on the home front. Like their allied counterparts in England and America and Russia, they were farmers, messengers, and air raid wardens. They collected raw materials in scrap drives. They put out fires and cleared debris after bombings. They worked in factories and hospitals and welfare agencies. But after the disastrous battle of Stalingrad in early 1943, in which the Nazis lost more than 285,000 men, Germany became desperate for new soldiers. By that summer, Nazi Germany was officially drafting boys as young as 16 for active military duty. They were given guns, grenades, and rocket launchers, and sent to the front lines with little or no training. Tens of thousands of young German boys died fighting on the Russian front alone. In one extraordinary case, the Nazis created a special, fully equipped tank division manned entirely by Hitler Youth between the ages of 16 and 18, and tasked them with stopping the Allied advance in France after D-Day. Of the more than 20,000 boys in the unit, almost half died in the war. In late 1944, when Germany's defeat was all but certain, Adolf Hitler ordered that every male between the ages of 15 and 60 who was not already fighting must join in the defense of Germany. But in reality, boys and girls, as young as 11 years old, were recruited to fight. The boys were given rocket launchers and grenades and sent to attack Allied tanks. The girls were taught to operate anti-aircraft guns and told to shoot down enemy planes. During the battle for the city of Aachen, American soldiers reported capturing German soldiers as young as eight years old. Though unskilled, the German children fought with a ferociousness that frightened Allied troops. The Nazis had told their young soldiers that the Allies were monsters who would torture and kill them if they were captured. So many of them fought to the death or committed suicide rather than surrender. Of the 5,000 Hitler youths who fought in the Battle of Berlin at the end of the war, only 500 survived. In Adolf Hitler's last public appearance in April of 1945, he emerged from his bunker underneath what was left of the Reich Chancellery Building to award the Iron Cross, Nazi Germany's highest honor, to members of the Hitler Youth who had showed bravery on the battlefield. The youngest of them was 12 years old. Hitler committed suicide just 10 days later, and within a week, Nazi Germany surrendered. But not before it had sacrificed an entire generation of young people to a mad dream of world domination. After the war, when the Allies had to decide which Nazis to try for war crimes, the Hitler youth who survived were forgiven because they were children. They had been misguided by their leaders, the Allies decided, who were really to blame. As a part of the denazification of Germany, the Allies showed films of the Nazi death camps to German children who had been members of the Hitler Youth and the Bund Deutsche Mädel. Many of them didn't believe the images they saw. They had been so brainwashed by their Nazi leaders that it took years for them to understand that they and not the Allies, were the monsters. In the years to come, the boys and girls who had been members of the Hitler Youth came to despise Nazi Germany for turning them into soldiers, making them complicit in the Holocaust, and robbing them of their youth.
Project 1065 is a work of fiction set against the very real backdrop of Nazi Germany in World War II. Kristallnacht, the Gestapo, the SRD, the concentration camps, the Hitler Youth, the Edelweiss Pirates, the Aryan education in German schools. All of that is real. Everything Adolf Hitler says to Michael and the other boys in this book is an actual quote from Hitler. I gathered them together from various speeches and interviews so that I wasn't putting words in Hitler's mouth. Adolf Hitler said enough crazy, awful things that I didn't need to make up anything new for him. By 1943, the Americans and British were taking turns bombing Berlin dropping more than 68,000 tons of bombs on the city, and many Allied bomber and fighter pilots had to parachute into enemy territory when their planes were shot out from under them. Some survived and were ferreted to safety by the resistance movement. Far more were captured and taken to concentration camps or killed. Nazi children were encouraged to spy on their parents and turn them in for violations, which they often did. The Nazis were great burners of degenerate books, too. But by 1943, when my story takes place, there weren't many large-scale book burnings anymore. Mostly because the Nazis had already rounded up and destroyed all the books they disagreed with. Ireland was officially neutral during World War II, much to the disappointment and disdain of England and the rest of the Allies. The Irish did have an embassy in Berlin during World War II, but Michael and his family are fictional characters. The spying that the O'Shaughnessy family does, however, is based in reality. In the 1980s, declassified documents revealed that the Irish diplomatic corps in Europe had been actively collecting intelligence and sending it back to the Allies, at great risk to themselves throughout World War II. Though her army never fought in the war, Ireland, it turns out, wasn't quite as neutral as everyone had been led to believe. Real 2 is Project 1065, the actual code name for the secret Nazi project to develop a jet-powered aircraft. In 1944, the Germans succeeded, and the Messerschmitt ME-262 Schwalbe became the world's first operational jet fighter, flying almost 100 miles an hour faster than any Allied plane in the skies. By then it was too little too late, but their invention of the jet engine did change the world. At the end of the war, the Allies snatched up the technology and developed jet planes of their own. And by the 1950s, jet planes began replacing propeller-powered planes in air forces and civilian air travel. Operation Paperclip, the code name for the real Allied plan to recruit or kidnap Nazi scientists to work for the United States, came a little later than I have used it here. But both the Americans and Russians played a chess game with scientists throughout the war, trying to capture the best brains in Europe for themselves. Both sides were particularly interested in rocket scientists for the coming space race and in nuclear physicists who could develop an atomic bomb. The Manhattan Project, the code name for the U.S. project that created the world's first nuclear weapon, was a much bigger secret than I have made it here. Most people didn't know anything about the development of the atomic bomb until the United States became the first and only nation to use one, dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima 
and Nagasaki, Japan in 1945. If you're looking to read more about Nazi Germany and the Hitler Youth, I highly recommend Susan Campbell Bertoletti's award-winning book, Hitler Youth, Growing Up in Hitler's Shadow, which follows 12 different young people growing up in Nazi